Hey, Isaac here. A note about this week's episode, which we're releasing in two parts. Several weeks ago, we spoke with two curators of the Guggenheim's recently opened exhibition, Art and China After 1989, Theater of the World. Our conversation took place before the show had opened and, as it turned out, just one day before a major controversy broke out surrounding three pieces in the exhibition that involved animals. This part of the podcast, part one, is that original recording in which we discuss contemporary art, China, and how both were impacted by the rising tide of globalization. And without further ado, here's the show. Hello and welcome to the Artsy Podcast. I'm your host, Isaac Kaplan, joined this week by two very special guests. To the left of me, Guggenheim curator Alexandra Monroe. Hi, Isaac. And to the right of me, director of the Owen Center for Contemporary Art, Phil Tanari. Hi. Hey, Phil. Both of you are curators of a show that's about to open at the Guggenheim called Art in China after 1989 Theater of the World. Now, there's a third curator as well, Ho Hanru, who can't unfortunately join us in the studio this week, but we know he was instrumental to the show. But I'm hoping that the two of you can help answer some questions about the exhibition about contemporary art and China. Maybe we can just kick off by talking about that date, 1989. Can you maybe talk a little bit about why that was your starting point? Set the stage of the political and social situation in China. We selected 1989 because it is the end of an era and the beginning of another era known as the age of globalization. Many of the conditions that created what we know of as the 21st century were really forged during this period of 89 to 2008. And China, we're arguing, was central, not peripheral to those changes. 89 was a pivotal year. In China, it was the student protest movement that did lead to the crushing of the of the student movement at Tiananmen on June 4th. But there were also many other events in the art world that Phil can talk about that also identify this year as the beginning of the rise of what we know of as global contemporary art. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you think about what happened just in the first half of 1989 in February, uh, this major exhibition at the National Art Gallery in Beijing called China Avant-Garde, which is the end of the uh, it's the end of the party. It's really the end of the 80s art movement in China. Uh, very dramatically ends with the artist Xiao Lu firing a gun into her own installation, uh, and the, the crowd being cleared from the room, as as one might suspect. A few weeks after that, you had an exhibition at the Pompidou uh, called Magicien de la Terre, which styled itself as the first global exhibition of contemporary art. That was literally its tagline. And it included three Chinese artists, all of whom are in our show uh, and all of whom were in that earlier show in 1989. So all of these things happened before the students or even as the students started to fill the square. And that's just the first half of the year. You know, in November, the Berlin Wall collapses. In Geneva, at CERN, the World Wide Web is invented. Uh, and kind of all of these architectures of, of our current moment can really be traced right back to then. How interwoven were the artistic currents and the political currents in China at this time? I mean, were, were artists activists? Were activist artists? What was the relationship between these two things? I think the word activist and artist was not even a conception in people's mind uh, at this time in China. And remember also that a number of the artists in our show were living and working outside of China. One of the main 
ideas of our exhibition is to present this work as a global phenomenon, as Chinese artists as part of a global conversation. These are artists who are showing in Venice, they're showing in Documenta, they're living in Tokyo, they're living in Berlin, Paris, and Australia. And they're not all responding to the exact same set of issues or the exact same political currents. They're reacting much more broadly to geopolitical changes that were affecting artists and intellectuals and societies around the world. And what this exhibition is trying to do is what kind of lens on our shared experience can these artists mm. bring to our understanding of these of these two decades that we've all lived through. All of that is completely true. And I would also say that, you know, if you look at those iconic images of the students on the square, there's this statue of uh, modeled on the Statue of Liberty called the Goddess of Democracy, which was built in the sculpture studios at the Central Academy of Fine Arts, which was around the corner. And many of the artists that we are working with in this show were there and were, were committed and were interested in advocating for um, individual freedoms, kind of even to this day. Uh, you know, the artist that we begin and end with, Gudeshin, actually has withdrawn completely from the art world and doesn't make work anymore because he doesn't like where the society has gone. Um, I, I would almost say he's more extreme politically than, you know, the artist we mainly think of as political from China, a guy called Ai Weiwei. Who? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that, that's interesting. You, you sort of mentioned this two-decade span. So the exhibition chooses 2008 as its closing point, which I also think is an interesting choice. Why was that your end bracket? Well, again, with an exhibition whose our focus is on China, 2008 is the Beijing Olympics. And China had worked extremely hard to achieve this global prominence. And the Olympics are used as a way to announce to their own people and to the world that China is now not quite a superpower, but well on its way to becoming the second largest economy in the world and very possibly in the next decade or two, the first. Globally, 2008 is also a very interesting year because, of course, it's the year Barack Obama is elected, and it's the year of the global recession. And the world's intoxication with the positive aspects of globalization, mass migration, low tariffs, production of tremendous wealth in China and Southeast Asia, uh, huge advance in standard of living in many parts of the world, all that promise sort of collapses with the Great Recession, when sort of the evils, the ills of globalization begin to get focused in people's minds. Um, what's also interesting is there's a shift in, in internet is almost still, you would almost say, an analog to the arrival of social media and the, the development of the mobilization through social media of movements like Occupy Wall Street or movements like the Tea Party that happened around this time with the arrival of something like Twitter. Uh, and it leads to really what we now see of these populist movements. So I think historically we can look to 2008 as not only this very important year for China, uh, that's the culmination of this whole two-decade period after Tiananmen that's then attended by another round of very aggressive economic reforms led by Deng Xiaoping and others leading to this enormous creation of wealth, this enormous period of urbanization, this enormous period of massive change that the artists in this exhibition mm. are responding to. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting time bracket because so often when people are trying to parse this current moment that we're standing in, I think they start in 2008 and look at everything that happened since then. But in a lot of ways, the art, the culture, 
the technology, the financial systems that developed in the lead up to 2008 are as instructive uh, in, in defining that as everything that's happened since then. But it, it was also just so pronounced. I mean, I've been living in Beijing more or less since 2001, and I remember so vividly, basically since China won its Olympic bid in the summer of 2001, there were clocks around the city and around the country counting down literally the seconds until 8 o'clock on August 8th, 2008. So it was just, it understood itself as a historical moment to be built up to. Um, so to kind of go back to it 10 years later is is not mm -hmm. such a crazy thing to do. So I think the title along with the start date, the fact that it's art and China, not art in China says quite a bit about the focus of the show. Phil, in your catalog essay, you kind of talk about how Chinese contemporary art as, as a designation is paradoxical, broken, wrong. I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about, you know, what, what even this work should be called if it can be grouped together under a, a phrase. A lot of our uh, thinking about the field has come out of a sort of discussed with the way in which it's been you know, sort of packaged under these three words. You almost, in some ways, you almost start to cringe when you hear them because they, they almost invite uh, a set of expectations about exactly what you're going to see that just makes looking at the work impossible. And yet there is this extremely specific and pervasive history and context that, that lends everything to, to the work. So for us, I mean, it's been a question of how do you show those things in ways that uh, enrich each other. We are offering uh, what we consider a, a slice through a period, through the work of artists who we have selected around conceptual art, around the notion of global conceptualism. So there are many, many aspects of Chinese art. There are many mediums of Chinese art. There are many Chinese artists working within China and internationally who are not included in this exhibition. And that discipline was very deliberate. And we're really landed on possibly a movement. We're calling this a movement with a small M, the Chinese artists who are engaged with conceptual art practices. And what does that allow artists like Zhang Peili, uh, a, a video artist who's considered sort of the father of Chinese video, who takes it up in the late 80s and into the 90s. Many of his works are featured in the exhibition. Um, it opens up a kind of criticality. It opens up a space to question their society, to question systems of authority, to question systems of meaning, to, to question sort of any sort of received notions, whether it's coming from the West or it's coming from their own history of a communist academic orthodoxy. It just gives these artists a sense of freedom and individual space that is very uh, hard won. I mean, the thing that happens in 1989 is the context immediately becomes global because of the things we were just talking about, um, because this work is suddenly being presented abroad, because these artists are often traveling, some of them leave and relocate, and because the Western art world becomes truly global during this period. This is when this phenomenon of biennialism, global contemporary art, whatever you want to call it, um, really takes root. It's also interesting because in the 80s, Chinese artists largely perceive themselves to be making modern art. Um, if you look at like that show we talked about it in, in 1989, the Chinese title was the Great Modern Art Exhibition of China. Um, but somewhere in the 90s, the term contemporary, uh, Dangdai, comes into use. 
Uh, and and you'll even talk to curators in China. I mean, I have one curator I've worked with a lot, a guy by the name of Sun Dongdong, has argued that actually contemporary art in China doesn't really begin until 2008 because it's only then when you have a deeply rooted enough kind of global consciousness uh, because of kind of the ways information is transmitted and the sorts of experiences people are having and kind of the state of the the, the larger world uh, that that even becomes a tenable concept. So these this sort of three word um, tag that goes back to, I would say, to the early 90s is is something to to really interrogate. And that's that's one of the major things we're trying to do. And many of the works in the exhibition, I'd say about half the works in the show, whether it's installation, painting, video, sculpture, were made for exhibitions abroad. They were made for these biennials that Philip was talking about that were proliferating all over Asia. Again, they were made for residencies. The title piece of the show, Theater of the World by Huang Yongping, was actually made at an artist residency in, in Stuttgart in 1993. So these artists are responding to the new phenomenon of being a Chinese artist in an international context. Let's zoom in on a couple of works that you think are particularly important to the show. Maybe we could start with Theater of the World. Theater of the World is is um, a kind of terrarium cum panopticon, um, this structure with a mesh on top of it in the shape of a kind of Chinese turtle motif, um, but also of a you know 18th century English prison. And you kind of look in and you see... Um, nature running its course you see survival of the fittest um you see these insects and reptiles uh surviving and i think when huang yongping made this piece it was 1993 so he left china in 1989 um he went to paris to, to participate in uh, magician de la terre this exhibition at the pompidou pretty shortly thereafter he decided to relocate and pretty shortly thereafter, he was a staple on kind of the European contemporary art scene of the early 90s. He was doing a residency at this place called Schloss Solitude in in Stuttgart. And he made this piece, um, I think, at a time when he was really trying to understand, you know, here he was, this great hero of this very self-contained avant-garde movement of the 1980s in China. I mean, he was the hero uh, he had a group called the Xiamen Dada in 86. They did this exhibition where they burned all of their paintings. Um, they were the stars of kind of the, the art magazine scene that was quite um, quite vibrant uh, through those years. And then suddenly there he was um, finding his way again in a, in a context that had no idea, you know, could barely pronounce his name, uh, trying to figure out how his work might resonate. And I, I think that piece speaks to this moment of 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 thinking really hard about how artistic ideas survive, um, how individual subjectivities establish themselves, um, and kind of, you know, how the world works. Ho Hanru has spoken about this work a lot, and it was actually Hanru's idea to title our show after this piece. And another very interesting thing about this work is, is its title, Theater of the World. It's, as Phil said, based on this panopticon structure that was actually created in the late 1600s by the um, English philosopher Jeremy Bentham as an architectural model of surveillance. Uh, so it was created as a, uh, a radiating uh, structure with a central tower where the surveyor could see the activities of all the inmates or all the insane people. Uh, Foucault picks up this 
Bentham Panopticon in the 1960s as a metaphor for modernism itself, as a metaphor for systems of control and how modernism that leads to colonialism, that leads to imperialism, that leads to the, the whole kind of enlightenment um, system of knowledge that is empirically based and is considered to be the only system of knowledge in the world. Um, if Foucault begins to unravel that and, and shake that out. And, and Huang Yongping, like many other artists of his generation that we're focused on, is also very trained in postmodern thought, along with Duchamp, who they're all looking at um, uh, and reading about. They're also reading Foucault. They're also reading Derrida in terrible translations, but they get the idea. Uh, and they get the idea that modernism is not this monolithic thing um, and that taking um, ideas from different temporalities and from different knowledge sources, including their own, including, like, say, in Huang Yongping's case, the I Ching, we can introduce divination, we can introduce chance, we can introduce other forms of knowledge, other kinds of facts, other kinds of um, ideas that are utterly non-Western into this um, theater of the world. And and that is something that Ho Hanru calls the third space. Uh, and I think it's that um, intelligence and that questioning and that criticality that Chinese artists like Huang Yongping and also Zhang Peili and also Tsai Guochang at the Chen Zhen and other artists in the show active in this period of the 90s are introducing into a global conversation of art at that time, which links them to a larger, I would say, even philosophical revolution. Uh, and that's another historical idea that we're trying to recuperate with this exhibition and trying to shed light on is let's go back to that moment of the late 80s and 90s. What were artists thinking of? It was the rise of multiculturalism. What what, what what role did Chinese artists and Chinese ideas and the challenges that certain works like Theater of the World and Stuttgart in 1993 bring to that conversation? How did that stretch and bend our own idea of what contemporary art could be or what it could no longer be? It challenged an insularity that was so assumed um, and still so prevalent at that time. Yeah, it's interesting because when, you know, hearing you talk reminds me of an exhibition I saw relatively recently at Elizabeth D. Uh, in Harlem uh, about Hungarian artists working under authoritarianism and how they would take strands of modernism and other forms uh, in, that were dominant in the West at the time, both speaking into that dialogue, even though they were often not heard by the, the Western artists and thinkers they were they were talking to, but also putting motifs in that you didn't see other places. And it sort of sounds like from what you're speaking about, there, this is another element of that, another element of, of to use your word, exploding the sort of straightforward Western narrative of art history and, and art. Which was exactly what was happening at that time all around the world. The process of translation is always really interesting. And we have a whole section that kind of looks at specific examples of how ideas kind of made their way back into this Chinese scene. So if you think about, for example, I mean, people know uh, the endurance works uh, that Zhang Huan and some of these other performance artists in the East Village created in the early 90s. What some people don't necessarily know is that a lot of the ideas behind those works actually came with Ai Weiwei when he returned from New York in 1993 uh, and came from his encounter and conversations with Te Qingxie, the major Taiwan-born, longtime New York-based um, performance artist who made five key one-year-long performance pieces in, in the late 70s and early 80s. So we're really interested in those kinds of moments of transference, we're calling them mm -hmm. after this piece by Xu Bing, 
where where ideas kind of imperfectly cross borders and and take on new lives when they when they return. And I think we're also very interested in certain passages in this exhibition of how Chinese artists were very skeptical of being used, mm. how they were being used, how they were being manipulated and appropriated into this movement that we're talking about, this kind of, you know, the rise of postmodernism, the rise of multiculturalism, the rise of biennialism, the kind of sudden need that curators around the world felt to be inclusive and um, exploratory and go beyond the typical geographies of modern contemporary art of Paris and New York. This was all happening. We forget it because it's become sort of lingua franca now, but it was still not at that time. I was I was fighting for some of these artists at that time. My first Kusama show was in 1989. It was an uphill battle to consider that artists were um, from Asia could make and were making and or in Kusama's case had made specific art historical contributions to what we know of contemporary art and modern art. But some of these artists were very uncomfortable or were, were asking kind of skeptical questions about, you know, who are these Western curators to come in and arbitrate the contemporary art scene? What is this burgeoning market that is placing value on the work that we're making? And one of the pieces that we have that uh, I don't think has ever been shown in New York before, I don't think, is a work by two artists, Yang Lei and Hong Hao. And they wrote in 1997, a fake invitation letter on fake documenta letterhead, inviting a 100 contemporary artists in China to uh, participate in Documenta 10, which was Catherine David's Documenta. And they signed it with this funny made-up name that was their own name spelled backwards in Roman alphabet. And they sent it out, very official looking. And some of the artists received it and said, wow, We've gotten to document it, and others artists received it and realized immediately it's a spoof. <laughs> but the whole exercise, which we're showing, we're showing those letters, we're showing the um, the envelopes. Were um, it was an act of kind of defiance on Yan Lei and Hong Hao's part, saying, "Look how we have become enslaved again. Um, look how quickly uh, since coming back into the the wave of of contemporary art globally, we have been kind of sucked into other people's ideas of." what we should be. And that skepticism is is very healthy. And that irony is something that we're very interested in as well. And several other works kind of tie into that. How do the artists think about being shown at a place like the Guggenheim, which is one of these Western institutions? Did you feel as though you were part of this longer dialogue? Oh, I think absolutely. But it is, it is also um, quite interesting, you know, what it means to do a show like this now versus 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. Um, and as much as the artists have been a pleasure to work with and are quite excited to be in the show, I think there's an understanding on everyone's part that, you know, being in a show at a major Western museum is no longer the be all and end all of an artist's career in China. And I think there's been, it's made for a very healthy um, dialogue with, with our participating artists in a way that I don't necessarily think would have been possible at an earlier moment. The Guggenheim, we have a long relationship with many of these artists. We've been showing these artists. We've been acquiring their works. I've been going in and out of China since the early 1990s. Ho Hanru was a protagonist in this history. He was at CAFA in the 80s. He was on the square in this, uh, the spring of 89. He was making, you know, he was climbing up this styrofoam goddess of uh, democracy that uh, Phil mentioned earlier. He's been an advocate and friend. Um, 
godparent to these artists uh, for the last 30 years, and Phil has been living and working in Beijing since 2001. The artists chose to be in the show because of us. They liked our conversation. They liked the thinking we were bringing. They liked the idea of exploding the concept of contemporary Chinese art because they, too, feel somewhat uh, imprisoned by it. They're very dissatisfied with the projection of Chinese art abroad. And they like that we're not calling this contemporary Chinese art. They like that we're calling it art and China. These are deliberate parallel universes that intersect, and we're looking at those intersections. So as I mentioned earlier, we recorded this podcast one day before a controversy erupted surrounding three of the works in the show, including Theater of the World, which we discussed earlier. On part two of this podcast, we sat down again with Phil and Alexandra to discuss the museum's response, the artist's reactions, and what this will mean for museums going forward. It's available now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer this week, as always, associate editor Abigail Kane. The theme music is by Broke for Free. <laughs>